This is a message from our sponsors at Attain. If you work in marketing or advertising, you know ROI and outcomes have never been more important. And as the deprecation of third-party cookies looms, you're probably thinking about how to make up for the loss of that crucial data. Good news. Attain makes driving, measuring, and proving outcomes easier than ever, even in a cookie-less future. Attain is a commerce data company that helps marketers leverage privacy-first data to drive better outcomes across media activation and measurement. Their commerce data is 100% opted in, available in real time, and provides marketers with visibility into purchases made across all categories, all retailers, and all touchpoints. What does this mean for you? Whether you want to gain new customers, retain existing customers, or simply increase customer lifetime value, Attain's opted-in commerce data allows you to more efficiently and more effectively drive outcomes. With Attain's data, you can measure and optimize in real time based on real sales data. The best part, Attain's measurement and data solutions are available with major partners like the Trade Desk, LiveRamp, OpenX, and many more, making it easy to get started today. Visit attaindata.io to start browsing commerce data for free. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and Mike Katz, the CEO of MParticle. Mike, thanks for being here. Hey, good to see you guys. And Mike, as probably everyone knows, has a long, illustrious background, uh, including being the CEO of Interclick, that was acquired by Yahoo, uh, and many other years and years of ad tech and martech experience. Uh, so we're very excited to hear from you. Well, great to be here. Some housekeeping. So Marketecture is one year old, which is incredible. I launched it uh, a year ago at Programmatic I.O. in Las Vegas, which I promptly got COVID at, but it was a good start otherwise. So one year, over 100 videos on our site, Marketecture TV. Uh, we recently launched transcripts of all of our in-depth interviews with CEOs. So if you don't have time to watch the videos, you can download a PDF of the transcript, share them with your team. It's a really good value to subscribe to that. Also worth noting that this podcast is now being published on YouTube. Um, so you may be listening to this on your favorite podcast player, but if you prefer YouTube, we're also putting the audio only onto YouTube. Uh, we got a couple of subscribers last week as soon as we did that. All right, Mike, tell us about MParticle. I think probably a lot of people know what it is. It's a CDP. We're going to have a lot of acronyms today, but tell us about it. Somebody called me the godfather of the CDP space. Yeah, I think that's wrong. I'm fine with it, man. Who doesn't want to be the godfather? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we're a, we're a 10-year-old company. I used to say we were headquartered in New York, but we're, we're kind of everywhere. We're, we're a remote-first company for now. I think we'll probably go back to the in-office environment next year, most likely. So if my CFO, David, if you're listening, I just declared it here. Uh, <laughs> All the employees yeah, are, are figuring this out now. Breaking, Breaking news. news. Yeah, I'm just like, the convenience of, of remote work is is great. But the, the sacrifice in terms of collaboration, when you're trying to orient a large team towards the achievement of a common goal. Like, I don't think that that's the right trade-off anymore. I think that makes sense. So we're recording this on June 1st. Yesterday, I think it was David Sachs. He had a, a semi-viral tweet about, um, you know, effectively like RTO, right? Return to office being the new standard. And, uh, you know, there was, as usual on Twitter, a, a lot of back and forth. But I think he made some really good points where, you know, as a organization scales, particularly for a founder, like you miss out on a lot and the organization misses out on a lot, not being together, not having, you know, just 
people having that, you know, meeting after the meeting and serendipitous connections and being able to to build culture. So have you like been feeling that over the course of the past couple of years is, you know, basically everybody's gone either remote only or, or remote first? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I like, I think we built an incredible culture heading into, you know, from 2013 to, to 2020. I think that it was a differentiator for us and, you know, arguably a strategic advantage. And then that all kind of went away during the pandemic and kind of the work from home environment. And we fared well, like we probably had some of our best quarters during the pandemic and we've continued to do well, but I feel like we've definitely lost that culture, the the collaboration, the connection, community, all the, yeah, all, all the C words. We were together as a company last week out in Scottsdale. So we got the, the entire company together for really like the, the first time ever. And it was just such a great reminder one, in terms of like how many awesome people there are within the company. And then two, the importance of connection and, 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 and meeting people and getting to know them and not just like treating them as this like avatar on the other side of a screen that can help you transact to solve the, like, the, the thing that you're trying to solve. Yeah, we had Jay Friedman from the Goodway Group here, and he spoke at length about the fact that his company has always been 100% remote well before COVID. Uh, and I think the lesson really is that you have to be intentional about what you're doing. Um, you, can't just, you can't just throw everything to, uh, to chance and hope people come to the office. You kind of need to have a policy, you need to have a culture and support it. I completely agree. I think like when people point to like the Amazon culture, you know, I think the what underpins that strong execution there is the level of intentionality and businesses are just systems, right? And you do need to be intentional about the way that you drive the alignment of information and, and incentives and processes and the way that people show up with whatever the goal is. Um, right. So I completely agree with that. Yeah, I, I I think the reason people reacted poorly to David Sachs's uh, pronouncement is because, like everything he says, it's largely uninformed and very confident. But yeah, let's get back to CDP. Yeah, he's a dick too. I'll, I'll go on record. He's a dick. All right, we are on record. I, I think wow. he's a dick too. Eric, do you think he's a dick? Uh, not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not bad. <laughs> I love putting Eric on the spot. <laughs> I'm going to have to click the not NSFW button in Spotify because of this conversation. <laughs> okay, no one wants to hear our opinions on this. Let's go to CDBs. I want to hear about uh, data. Talk, yeah, talk about data. Hold on. Before we get into it, just disclosure, I'm a, I'm a personal investor in MParticle, and, and thank you, Michael, for allowing that. Yeah, absolutely. appreciate the support, really, from, uh, from day zero. Yeah, and I asked Mike for an investment in beeswax, and he turned me down, so we're all, we're all disclosed. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, I did. I, I definitely did. Although I don't know if I said no. I think I may have just ghosted you, which is probably worse. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, <laughs> it, it was ad tech. I don't know. It was just a dumb mistake. My bad. If I could take it back, I would. I bet. Um, so CDPs, what, what can I tell you guys? What is a CDP? Why is everything dead? Like, okay, this is my problem with CDPs. Is like, ever since the, you became the godfather of CDPs, I read article after Substack after Medium about things being dead. Uh, DMPs are dead. CDPs are dead. Reverse ETL is dead. I don't even know what that is. 
I want to find out what reverse ETL is. I got an email, a blind email from some salesperson saying compostable, composable CDPs are the new thing. I don't know what that is. Help me. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Everybody loves the fill in the blank is dead statement. Like I, I made that statement about DMPs, I think back in, I think it was 2017. At, yeah, it was um, a, it was at Ad Exchanger. I remember that. Yeah, programmatic IO. So it was like in January to start the year, and I think like I pissed off a lot of people. But I've gone back to that presentation, and I think I made a bunch of compelling points, which you know, with the benefit of uh, hindsight, have turned out to be true. When folks are talking about like the death of of the CDP, you know, one I think it's just marketing. They're trying to get headlines, claiming the death of something is kind of like claiming you've crossed the chasm like it it doesn't work that way you have to actually like earn earn that you have to have like a unique perspective on where the future is going now the companies that are talking about the death of the cdp they themselves are the same ones who are now talking about the composable cdp or as as you called it the the compostable cdp <laughs> i added a, I added a yeah, t in there it changed the meaning yeah <laughs> And so it's it's so much better. The compostable CDP is definitely look. There's there's an important trend that's that's happening, and that is the cloud data warehouse is becoming almost like the universal data store within most organizations. Most yeah, technically sound, somewhat data mature organizations, right? And that shift now changes things for every you know every application that has built like a proprietary data store for us as as a cdp like if 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 we kind of step back the value that we've created was never in the storage of data like nobody puts data into a cdp just to leave it there so it's never about data at rest it's always about data in motion so the intelligent movement of data is where the value is created. That's what the market has uh, assigned our job to be done as. And that's ultimately what people are buying. Now, in, in doing so, you know, for us at MParticle, we've created a number of different services or, or applications that sit on top of our data store. These are things like data quality protection, privacy and compliance enforcement, insights and analytics, um, segmentation and, and, and journeys, being able to do like transformations, th- things like that. And whether that sits on top of our proprietary data store or a more universally adopted data store, whether that's Snowflake or BigQuery or Redshift or Databricks, like it shouldn't matter because that's not to focus on that misses the point entirely. I think of of us as this this business logic layer, almost this customer decision engine that helps our customers assign truth to their data, understand the meaning behind their data, and then make it easy to connect that data. So from a layman's perspective, my, my understanding of these, what what is dead, what is not dead, uh, is uh, DMPs were primarily anonymous data and, um, and cookies, third-party cookies, et cetera. And they were supposed to solve all the data problems of the world. But in fact, they're 
pretty much their only use case was media buying and media optimization. And as cookies went away, they died. True or false? Do you agree or disagree with that characterization? I, I completely agree. I think DMPs told a great story around something bigger than paid ad targeting, but they never evolved into anything more. And then with the rise of mobile, so this was like the other trend that was really disruptive, the rise of mobile and, 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 and the app store, like there is no such thing as like pixels and, and cookies inside app environments. Everything had to move towards an API-based setup. And architecturally, they weren't like they weren't built. Yeah, I, I remember I was at AppNexus and O'Kelly asked me to like kind of do a little investigation of the DMP space because he used to always say like, I don't even know what it is. I don't know what a DMP is. Anyway, um, he didn't sound like an old Borscht Belt Jewish comedian when he said that, but he did. Uh, and, <laughs> and I went out and I talked worse. <laughs> yeah, he was yelling. So I, so I went out to all the DMPs. I just met with the CEOs and I was amazed. This is like 2011, maybe. I was amazed at how cookie oriented they were. They had no story on mobile. They were they were like, oh yeah, mobile's coming. We care, but like it was cookies, cookies, cookies. So so I don't think it was surprising that what used to be a DMP is dead. I think there are some companies like Lodomy that are still doing really well in the ad tech niche. But yeah, well, actually, this is a question for for Mike. Why is it such a durable category, the DMP, particularly on the publisher side? Like, I mean, if you look. I mean, basically, they all have either their legacy DMPs or some of the you know newer ones like a like a Lodomy or or, or a Permutive. They don't seem to go away. Like, what? Why is it such a durable thing on the pub side? Any any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, there's two things. Like, one categories they persist long after somebody calls their their death, right? Like, it doesn't just like happen the the day of. DMPs have become like pretty firmly entrenched in. A bunch of organizations and they create business processes around those solutions and it's tough to it's tough to change like there's this inertia that ends up setting in you also have like there is a continuum of of technology buyers and so towards the end of life in in terms of any market adopting new technology like you do have laggards kind of still kind of hanging on because they're just not quick to adopt new tech trends. And the other the other kind of big point is that as Ari mentioned, DMPs were fine in a cookie-based completely anonymous world. And still a bunch of media companies, even the ones that have now started to embrace subscription or transaction-based business models, they still do have a bunch of anonymous traffic. Yep. And so I think that there is a place for, for those solutions, although I do think that it's it's finite, like they they won't persist in their current state. Yeah, I was just actually quoted in Ad Exchanger last week about the launch of ArcSpan, which is a publisher-oriented DMP, because that use case of organizing anonymous data and selling against it still exists and is a valid use case. Let's move on to reverse ETL. Is, is, what, is, what the hell is reverse ETL? Uh, let me tell you once again what I think it is. I think it's like they're saying CDPs are all about distributing data to partners. But what if you just had your own database on Snowflake and then could push data out when you wanted to? Is that what a reverse ETL is? Or was that what the sales pitch is? Um, yeah. Yeah. So their, their sales pitch is like, hey, you already have all your data in your data warehouse, which is directionally correct for some organizations. Um, what it ignores is the state of, of data quality 
And in mo inside most organizations, the data that sits in their data warehouse is, is pretty messy. Um, and there's there's no worse approach than just to assume like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna get started faster, so there's a faster path to value realization, than saying like, hey, let me just kind of tap into this like swamp of a data lake for data warehouse. So yes, what reverse ETL is then. When I was describing the different services and applications that, that we offer, it is the segmentation and activation capabilities without really like everything else. So it's when, when you think about it that way, right, remove where the data is coming from or what the data store is. It's a stripped down, very incomplete CDP. Right. So the irony in all of this is that the companies that want to be CDPs started to claim that the CDP was dying, right? And yeah. it hasn't. And if anything, now everybody's a CDP. And it's been really interesting to see the, the evolution of this category because like at Interclick, you know, we were a late entrant into a super crowded space and we were under undercapitalized relative to probably everybody except, you know, Eric and Mike at Undertone. But like we out executed folks. And, and, and then it was like at M Particle, we were like the first. We we're like, oh, this is all white space. And it's been fun to see it kind of come, you know, as far as it has, where now like everybody's a CDP. And I used to have to convince people that they had these problems that they weren't even aware of. And now people are buying CDPs without even understanding how they're going to use it. Yeah, there's so many companies that claim to be CDPs. Um, really, anyone who had data just put out a press release for the last 10 years that they're really a CDP. Um, totally. Okay, composable CDPs. I literally have no idea. I couldn't even guess what this would be. Or what's it so claim to be? Yeah, so if you break down the CDP into a number of components, and I'm going to kind of paint this in somewhat broad strokes, you have the data collection piece, you have the data storage part, you may have capabilities like the ones I mentioned around observability or data quality. You may have some like privacy and compliance tools, and then you have like the connectors, right? So, you know, kind of simply put what it looks like is one vendor to collect your data and to send it to the data warehouse, the data warehouse being the system of, of data storage. And then there's usually a, a tool like a reverse ETL tool that does the one service or one application around audience segmentation and like the syndication of those of those um, audience segments. Right. So that's that's all it is. It's it's a it's a subset. Well, it's a uh, it's a fragmented, disjointed subset of what like a purpose-built system can really do. Right. That sounds great. That sounds like a great solution. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The workflows are easy. Uh, so I'm uh, a lot of people admire you for the basic reason that you were able to escape ad tech. So uh, I've, I've personally tried. Um, I'm still trying. Um, what's it like on the other side? You're not an ad tech anymore. You're in sort of MarTech. Um, what's, what's it like on the other side? Is are there parts of ad tech you miss? Uh, I guess I'd love to hear your riff on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ad tech is fun because it's like 
it's fast paced. The people are entertaining, like all that. Like I, 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 I and not, and not <laughs> yeah, to no, say that, like, yeah, that, it, like that to me was like always the best part of it. Um, and you know, I think we built an incredible team and an incredible culture at, at Interclick. I was just never passionate about the go to market, like selling to agencies. Yep. I just like, I didn't, I, I was never in love with, with that. And so it took me a while. I've found that it's, it's taken us when we hire people that I know and, and trust and have been high performers for me in the past at companies like Interclick or, or Yahoo. It's taken them a long time to acclimate from ad tech to marketing tech, primarily because not only is the go-to-market so different, they actually have to unlearn a lot of the behaviors that made them successful in ad tech because those those same behaviors will make you incredibly unsuccessful in marketing tech. L- like what? I want to hear, so hear something. The undisciplined nature of like chasing down an opportunity and basically begging them to give you a test budget. Like uh-huh. that doesn't that doesn't exist in any industry other than ad tech. Like that is not real go to market. Like you have to understand business problems and opportunities and what their KPIs are and what their existing systems are that they have in place. And if they're a qualified buyer and how they think about um, their, like in our case, data architecture and you're uncovering landmines along the entire like buyer journey. And in ad tech, what are you doing? You're getting people to a bar, to a nice restaurant or a concert or a store, and you're kind of like bribing your way to a test budget. Right, right. And uh, the big difference is that in ad tech, people are spending money. They're already spending money. And the goal of the ad tech vendor is to skim a little bit of that money in exchange for some value add. Um, In MarTech, there may not be a budget. You may be creating new budget or you may be creating new challenges for the customer that they were looking to solve. It's a pretty different different sales process. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like one aspect of ad tech that I would say is transferable is like the importance of relationship building. But I think in marketing tech, the relationship building is like one aspect of go-to-market success. It's not the only aspect. Yeah. And so, you know, the the, the, the budget thing is is very real. The other part of that, and like it's um, tangentially related, it's like in enterprise software sales, you know, the, the best outcome is you go through this long sales process and, and you win the deal. The second best outcome is that you qualify out the opportunity super fast as soon as like one conversation so that you're not chasing and chasing and chasing. But in ad tech, it kind of like the, you're rewarded for the chase. Like you don't always have to win people over right away. You just kind of have to wear them down, at least in my experience. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about that, but like, I, I think it's more, um, once again, to, I'm quoting O'Kelly twice in one, one call, uh, which is like, he's always caught hanging around the hoop. You know, just like if you're there enough, they see your face enough, someday they're like, hey, you could have this budget. Sure, I, I have a feeling I could use you at some point. Totally. Yeah, I mean, that's what I meant by wearing them down, not just like sh- showing up at their desk and standing over them and being like, please, please, please. It's it's, it's, it's much more subtle. 
Well, we've heard about how Eric shows up at your doorstep trying to sell you an I.O. That was from about four episodes ago. <laughs> if you were listening to that one, that was amusing. I didn't hear that. <laughs> Remember the work from home conversation? Well, he yeah. didn't. Uh, he, he took it literally and tried to sell an I.O. It's someone's kitchen. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. You can't knock the hustle. It worked. Yeah, good. That's all that mattered. <laughs> Yeah, but I I do think that's a that's an interesting point around you know a the pace right like you know you know adtech has has transactional businesses and then they've got you know I think um you know more sort of enterprise businesses as as the business has evolved but if you're in one of those transactional businesses I think you know to your point number one if you're you know sort of aligned with um and geared for that faster pace of business you can you can make a lot of things happen right because you can just be out and activity can can drive outcomes to a degree, and then um, I think to Ari's point, it makes sense, right? Like you know, you're tapping into existing budgets, or you can try to tap into you know sort of an existing existing budget pool, which um which allows for again that sort of faster pace and feedback loop. Whereas um, with what you're talking about, Mike, um, you might need to create like an entire category, which can take a heck of a lot of time, right? It's far more complex. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it it resembles very traditional enterprise sales versus this like fast pace, you know, definitely more exciting transactional based go to market. Yeah, definitely more exciting. I mean, there's no doubt that you're going to have a better time at an ad tech party than a martech party. Definitely. definitely. Uh, I don't even know if martech exists. Like, ad tech is a thing. <laughs> ad tech is a thing. We all interoperate. We all know each other. It all kind of makes sense. Martech ranges from what you do as, as a CDP, very high data, high complexity, to, you know, services that just post on your social networks and track the results, uh, to email, to, you know, it's just like a, a whole bunch of SaaS solutions doing all kinds of stuff that don't necessarily have much in common with each other. Yeah, these at these Martech market maps that you see sometimes, they're like, you know, 10x the number of logos than the Lumascape. 20x, 50x. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, the 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 heterogeneity across the the marketing tech industry, I think is much greater than ad tech. Like I think there was a Twitter exchange about this, but like I feel like most of the innovation within ad tech has kind of come down to like ad serving basically. Whereas in marketing tech, sure, you have like CDPs and data platforms, you have customer engagement tools and marketing automation. And then you have like a number of specialists within that bucket. You have like eight different types of analytics products. You have the customer support tools like Zendesk and, and a bunch of others. And those companies look and feel and talk very, very differently. Um, and I'm ignoring, you know, the vast majority of it, but that, you know, I think paints a little bit of a picture. So I've heard this story before, but I'd love if you could quickly tell us how it ma how you managed to get the the hip hop star Nas on your cap table. You mean Nas. Um but yes. So sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nas, Nas, Nas. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> tomato tomato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a not a hip hop fan. Ari, I take it. I saw the Taylor Swift show this weekend. That was really mind-blowing. That counts. That counts. Well, I know, I know Francis is. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the super abbreviated version of it, but um, I was on my way to Cannes 
which is actually coming up in, in, in a few weeks. I was on, on my way there with, uh, with my brother. Uh, um, this was 2013. So we were, we had already sold Interclick. We were fully departed from Yahoo. And it was like, Hey, let's, let's get on the ground. Let's have some meetings. Let's talk about the new company. Um, and we were, we were waiting for, for a flight. I saw him and like my, my brother and I were like talking and my brother's not like a huge hip hop fan, but he likes it. And so I was like, Oh my God, that's, that's Nas. And he's like still talking like, okay, what's our first meeting? He's like trying to game plan and be like the responsible one of the two of us. And I'm like, no, this is like, this is a cool, pretty cool moment. And so, you know, for, for me, I don't, I don't ever really think about like talking to, to anybody when I'm traveling, even if I'm traveling like with, with my brother or like my best friend, whoever, right? Like if I'm, if I'm on a plane, headphones are in trying to sleep and I'm just relaxing. Um, so whatever, he ends up sitting next to us. And as we see plane in, in Paris, we end up connecting and talking and exchanged information and hung out a little bit that week. And I didn't even realize at the time that he did um, any angel investing and um, introduced me to his, uh, his business manager, who's become a good, close personal friend of mine, a guy named Anthony Saleh. And uh, yeah, they invested a few weeks later. And, um, you know, it was, it was pretty cool for, for us because I think we were one of the, one of the first companies um, back in the day to, to, to have like a celebrity investor. Right. Now you see like everybody seed round. It looks like a Coachella poster. <laughs> we're like, it's all celebrities. But I, f- I feel like we were, we were the first or like we were definitely one of the first. And like, I always get, I always want to be the first. I want to do things different. I want people to feel like, you know what? The first time I thought about that, the first time I saw it, the first time I heard it, that came from MK. Has, has he been a value-add investor? I think for, for sure. I mean, he spoke at our, our first conference back in, our first like user conference back in 2015, I want to say, and then, and then had like an incredible performance that, that night. And, you know, it's, it's all about brand building for, for one, creating great experiences that, um, you know, the the community that you're trying to sell into want want to be a part of but then also just like seeing the way that he carries himself is is definitely um it's motivated me and inspired me to to continue to grow uh and improve as a as a person awesome story so to get it straight it's nas at can not nas at con um (laughs) keep it all straight All right, let's take a quick break uh, here from our sponsors, and we'll come back with the news of the week. All right, this is a paid commercial advertisement from our sponsor, Flash Talking by MediaOcean. This ad was written by the Marketecture AI, so the copy was written by the AI, and I'm going to read it for you. Hey there, Marketecture listeners. It's your favorite ad tech guru, Ari Paparo, here to talk about our sponsor for today's episode, Flash Talking by MediaOcean. Now, you might be thinking, Flash Talking? That sounds like a superhero with a really specific power. But let me tell you, Flash Talking is actually a powerful ad platform that helps brands and agencies deliver amazing digital experiences to their audiences. With Flash Talking, you can create and deliver personalized ads that really resonate with your target customers. And the best part, you can do it all in one place thanks to MediaOcean's seamless integration. 
So if you're tired of juggling multiple ad platforms and want to streamline your digital advertising efforts, head over to Mediocean.com slash Flash Talking to learn more. Trust me, your customers will thank you for it. That's Mediocean.com slash Flash Talking. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Architecture. So interesting news this week. Um, let's talk Twitter first. We love talking about Twitter. Um, so uh, there was some news for the Digiday broke that Twitter would be rolling out some programmatic buying on its platform via Inmobi. So presumably the Inmobi DSP will be able to buy Twitter ads on the Twitter app um, using programmatic pipes, uh, which is sort of interesting because of the long uh, history of walled gardens. I mean, is this is this desperation because they just need the revenue or is this a real change of some kind? I don't know. They they didn't comment on it. Um, right. So and there's also I don't know if it was like actually announced or anything like that. I think somebody saw something in, in like an ads.txt file. If I if I read the uh, the article correctly. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they need to monetize. Right. Like, you know, they've got, uh, I think, a lot more DR centric advertisers on the platform today right so you know that, that's a lot of what we're seeing now you've got the linda yaccarino hire that's you know clearly designed to drive a lot more of the brands hopefully back to the platform um hopefully obviously if you're if you're sort of a fan of twitter or, or work there but you know tapping into all of the programmatic budgets out there is a is a no-brainer it's the low-hanging fruit so i'm not surprised i'm just wondering if this is this is it or if it's like the first the first step in you know really trying to aggressively move into programmatic, which for them should be a no-brainer and should be a substantial part of the biz. And I think it's a little bit of a deep cut, but I think they announced something with Turn like seven years ago, six, seven years ago, that Turn was able to bid into Twitter, but it then fizzled. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember exactly. I think it's also noteworthy that, you know, there's no real reason why a walled garden can't let people bid in. Um, exactly. You know, you could protect the user privacy. You don't need to send the IP address. You don't need to send the user ID. I think the platforms don't want to do it, mostly because they're so powerful they don't need to. But Twitter's not. I mean, I, I think I, I, I very much agree with what you said. Like, it's, um, I was actually surprised that uh, they didn't already support this pretty broadly. So, if this is something that's new, I feel like it's it's kind of long overdue. Another news item was that uh, WPP and NVIDIA announced a partnership to build AI-enabled content engine for digital advertising. That's what they're calling it. Um, it's built on NVIDIA Omniverse. I'm not an expert in NVIDIA products, so it's a little bit hard for me to say. But it it. it <laughs> but it's kind of interesting just because they're two two company names you wouldn't expect to be in this announcement. WPP because they're an agency and generally don't create new tech products and NVIDIA because they're infra and I don't think of them as sort of an application layer company. And he, uh, I'm sort of at a loss as to what to say about this. <laughs> well, I think I think it's, uh, you know, so NVIDIA is the, the hottest company in the world right now, right? Yeah. Like they, um, they, they became a I think a trillion dollar company after they did, yeah. that incredible run over the course of the past week or so. And, you know, everybody's talking about it. I think trying to catch up in terms of what they do, right? The CPU versus versus the GPU. So it's very much a company to be partnered with in this moment. So there's probably the motivation there. You know, on the other side of this is, you know, this desire for everyone to have an AI story, a generative AI story. So, you know, if you if you read the the release and it's a little hard to follow um, there's a couple of things it's it's a to your point there's not an application layer so they're going to be working with i think adobe in some way to help make this a reality 
And then number two, the thing that I thought was, you know, a little strange, but maybe not, is that this seems to be actually like, you know, generative AI for metaverse applications, which is surprising because that's probably such a small segment of the work that they do for, for customers and certainly not where I think a lot of the value to be gained with the generative AI stuff when it comes to creative. Yeah, um, so it was a little bit of a head scratcher in terms of hard to figure out leading towards the metaverse as the first use case. But I think it's also not surprising. Again, it's a, I think it's a cool company to be partnered with for, for any agency. Yeah, it's definitely a headline press release, but you need this, yeah. this press release is like an LSAT logic problem. Um, you know, you read it a couple times to try to, you know, what do they actually say? Yeah. I mean, on the other side of it, the real work that's being done on the generative stuff, which we talked about last week with the big ad ad platforms, I think that's that's where the real interesting stuff is. And then ultimately how the non-walled garden opportunity starts to emerge. That's where I'm spending a lot of time. That's where I think the real opportunity is. I mean, look, N NVIDIA, like they're, they're beasts because they're at like the center of every kind of major tech hype cycle um, because of where they sit so foundationally in the in the stack whether it's like gaming cloud computing the web3 nonsense from from a couple of years ago now now ai and i think wpp as uh an agency holding company i think like they have smart enough executives to know that if nothing else that's uh that's a good wagon to to kind of hitch their horse to um, or a good horse to hitch their wagon to, depending on how you right. how you look at it. And I like I would I would take the under on anything actually materializing it from from that announcement. Yeah, hey, we're talking about it here. So the press release was successful. Um, on this topic, I'd I'd love to hear. Um, you know, everyone's talking about generative AI for creative and all of these sort of somewhat obvious applications. But what are you hearing from your customers around? the impact of AI on their use of data. Lots of different types of, of AI. Do you mean just, are, are we talking about generative specifically or well, predict? Well, uh, yeah, I'd be interested in just what you're hearing from your customers because you're probably pretty plugged into sort of a group of marketers uh, that maybe I don't hear from regularly. Yeah, the, the part of AI that uh, we've been focused on for the good part of you know a year, year and a half is uh, around building predictions. And so we acquired a we acquired a company last year called Dedora, and they had built out a bunch of machine learning pipelines. And um, for us, it was it was always about the setup, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, we talked about this earlier, but M Particle started as a mobile data solution because we felt like that would be the setup to solve the multi-channel omni channel data challenges. We felt like when we had made enough headway on that front, that would serve as the foundation for solving the intelligence and, and automation that could help hopefully like up-level the utilization of, of first-party data. And so in doing so, we uh, in 2022, we actually bought a couple companies. So the first one was Indicative. Um, which is a customer journey analytics tool, which allows our customers to contextualize the, the customer journey, understand the why behind the what, see where there's like leverage or maybe weakness within any of the different like paths to con conversion. Um, and then we 
bought a company called Vidora, um, which yeah built built a bunch of machine learning pipelines so that our customers could predict what may happen. So you have a continuum of insights from kind of backwards looking what happens type questions to forward looking what do we predict or what may happen type questions. And so, you know, the things that our customers want to be able to do, they want to to drive more engagement. They want to prevent churn. They want to drive scale through lookalike models. They want to understand the impact of certain events or certain signals on the outcomes of campaigns or you know various uh, personalization initiatives so they're they're oftentimes doing uplift modeling and so you know that's the nature of the conversations that that we're having we're starting to experiment with uh, generative ai as a bit of like an overlay to some of the reports that we're that we're able to provide so think of like a you know an assistant that kind of sits on the on the side of the screen that can provide an explanation of of various trends um, or or charts that um, that we're that we're displaying, and and so you know I think the the early signs like it's it's cool we're able to do it in a in a way where it's like it's aggregated there's no like privacy or consent issues, but I'd say like the the confidence interval across like many of these insights that are produced is highly, highly variable. So you kind of have to preface a lot of the the results that are being provided with some sort of mechanism to kind of temper the the confidence or to temper the expectations. Right. Um, so really at the application layer uh, is where you're seeing the generative AI um, being used. Yeah. Campaigns, right. To like to automate the creation of text, maybe the the creation of of uh, of media or graphics. You know, I think like the generative AI thing. I'm going to have like a little bit of a contrarian take than than most. Like, I think it's cool, and I do think that AI will be the catalyst for the next bull market um, very broadly. But I think that um, generative AI, the main application as of right now and kind of what everybody's talking about is like it helps people avoid a cold start problem right right so like generating the first few lines of expert campaign or you know creating the the bones of a, of a speech or like a manuscript or like whatever it may be but that first iteration always kind of sucks mm-hmm. but it gives you like a starting point because if you've ever had to write anything or create anything the hardest part is like starting with that blank canvas so i think of it as as an incredibly value valuable mechanism to accelerate into whatever process that you're undertaking but tbd if it's going to be much much more than that where where then do you see the the opportunity you know you mentioned it's it's potentially the catalyst for the next bull market and um you know just total sidebar like You've been writing more about macro topics, which I think has been you know really cool to see from you in terms of like ZERP and hyperinflation and all of that stuff. Like you know, where 
as a as a CEO of a of a big business and trying to think through like you know market downturns, market market acceleration, where do you think we are in terms of like the cycle, um, broadly speaking, right? In terms of just like macro and the market and bull versus versus bear, and where where do you think things go in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, with like the ZERP era, I think it just it it fueled a lot of a lot of bad behavior, a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the entire Web3 thing, I think, is a, is a great example. I think closer to my world, like the rise of like the data engineer making all of the, all of the decisions for the business, I think is another example where like companies just became really, really undisciplined about focusing on building real businesses. And people just started buying tools because they could and storing data because they could and doing whatever like they, they they ran a month and with um with higher interest rates like the the ability to to raise more money um has like the dynamics have, have fundamentally shifted right like the bar is much higher you actually have to build a real business which means that a lot of the stupid stuff has started to and ultimately will go away right and so that's that's good that's that's a positive reset it's about you know the old school days of of interclick and and undertone when we had to build real business because if we didn't we wouldn't exist right like that yeah that that's what we're all kind of getting back to now i think the the role of ai on a go forward basis i think like i was saying before i don't know if it fully removes some of the barriers to, to entry but i think it reduces the friction that exists Maybe naturally, when you are starting from a from a cold start, um, and and kind of the coldest start is like day zero of building any any company and any business through intelligence and automation. I feel like it's going to accelerate and up level the the businesses and the opportunities that people pursue. And the backstop of that is that it has to be it has to be real. Yeah, I think the point I was going to make was that um, that cold start problem helps a lot with things like starting a new business. You know, there's all these demos about ChatGPT being able to create new websites, but it's not going to create a production scaled website. It's going to create your prototype you could show to an investor or potential customer, um, which gets you there much, much faster or writing a book or writing a children's book, you know, get uh, having for placement only kind of images. Uh, those things are huge improvements uh, versus starting from a blank piece of paper. Agreed. Yeah. Amen. Um, so on that, let's call it. So uh, this has been a amazing conversation. Um, just uh, one note that next week we are recording Markitecture podcast live at the ID5 on the road summit. Um, on Tuesday. So if you're there, come say hello. We'll still publish at the same time next week on uh, Friday morning. But Mike Katz, thank you so much for being here. This was a great conversation. Absolutely. I, I actually have one final question for you guys. Okay. Go for it. Would you call this a great podcast or the greatest podcast? We were ranked the number one podcast in ad tech by a totally scientific Twitter poll. No, my, MK is asking about this podcast, right? This one right here. Oh, yeah, this is the best ever. It's definitely ever. the best this week, no doubt. Yeah, no, we, we, jumped, <laughs> we jumped around to, to a lot, to a lot, we jumped around to a lot of good topics, right? RTO, the macro, ad tech versus martech. This is, this is a little bit more wide ranging. 
Absolutely. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.